The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to tonight's sessions, um, Conversations with Wallace Shawn. Um, before we get started, I'd, I'd like to make a few announcements. First, we would all like to acknowledge the Wallace Global Fund, um, which has made WeAreMany.org possible, which is the, the new site that is going to be having many of these uh, discussions and conversations um, recorded. Also tonight, there will be a dance party with DJ Nihar in Luxembourg and Deb's rooms starting at 10. There will be a cash bar, music, and raffle drawing for $100 in Haymarket Books. Um, we would like everyone to please turn your phones off. It will really um, interfere with the recording that we're doing. Um, and then we're also requesting that we want to reuse these badge holders. So if you're leaving, if this is the end of your conference, if you can please uh, drop it off at registration before you leave. Thank you. So we are very happy tonight to have Wallace Shawn. He is a, a playwright. People know who he is. <laughs> well-known playwright. He's also the author of essays from Haymarket Books. People can get a copy of this uh, along with some of his plays after uh, this session. Okay. I suppose I should say just a couple of words about uh, why I'm here. Well, I won't say that. I'll say... The, I'm going to read an essay that, uh, if I'm lucky, will appear in the paperback version of the book, so it hasn't been printed yet. Uh, and in a way, uh, you all are not really uh, uh, the people that I was writing this for. <laughs> um, <laughs> My uh, purpose, if I have one, really, uh, or my use, is that uh, I come from a sort of uh, bourgeois background, and uh, well, I had a friend went from a lower class background to lower class foreground, <laughs> and. Um, I've sort of gone from a bourgeois background to a bourgeois foreground, and I, if I have a point, it's that I can communicate to certain members of my own group. Uh, and uh, people who may not have thought of the things that have brought you all here. You're already here. Uh, I have performed a kind of interesting athletic feat in uh, crawling bit by bit from the thoughts that I was raised with 
to some slightly new thoughts that you all knew when you were 15 or 16. <laughs> uh, so it's a funny group to be speaking to for me, but uh, you can you can imagine that I'm saying all these things to completely different people. Uh, now the title of this uh, call uh, artistic things. So uh, you all are specialists in uh, the rational. I'm a specialist in the irrational. <laughs> and uh, so my little talk will be different from some of the others that you have heard because it it has a logic, but it you have to be a little bit uh, tolerant of the type of logic that, that it has. <laughs> it's my own logic, and it's uh, based on having spent you know many many decades writing in a more what people call artistic way. Uh, so I think um, I'm just going to read this and uh, you know I think you can take it. Uh, <laughs> why I call myself a socialist. In most reasonably large towns in the United States and Europe, you can find on some important public square or street a professional theater. And so in various quiet neighborhoods in these towns, you can usually also find some rather quiet individuals, the actors who work regularly in that theater. Individuals whose daily lives center around lawns and but who surprisingly at night put on the robes of kings and wizards, witches and queens, and for their particular community, they temporarily embody the darkest needs and loftiest hopes of the human species. Maybe we should even close that door. Just because that's the showbiz way that we try to <laughs> create a kind of strange focus. <laughs> the actor's role in the community is quite unlike anyone else's. Businessmen, for example, don't take their clothes off or cry in front of strangers in the course of their work. <laughs> Actors do. <laughs> Contrary to the popular misconception, the actor is not necessarily a specialist in imitating or portraying what he knows about other people. On the contrary, the actor may simply be a person who's more willing than others to reveal some truths about himself. Interestingly, the actress, who in her own persona may be gentle, shy, and socially awkward, someone whose hand trembles when 
nor does she hesitate when passing along the vilest gossip about her closest friends. The actress's next-door neighbors, who may not have had the chance to see her perform, might say that the person they know could never have been under any circumstances either elegant or cruel. But she knows the truth, that in fact she could have been either or both, and when she plays her part, she's simply showing the audience what she might have been if she'd in fact been an aristocrat in a chocolate house in the 18th century. We are not what we seem. We are more than what we seem. The actor knows that. And because the actor knows that hidden inside himself there's a wizard and a king, he also knows that when he's playing himself in his daily life, he's playing a part, he's performing, just as he's performing when he plays a part on stage. He knows that when he's on stage performing, he's in a sense deceiving his friends in the audience less than he does in daily life, not more. Because on stage, he's disclosing the parts of himself that in daily life he struggles to hide. He knows, in fact, that the role of himself is actually a rather small part, and that when he plays that part, he must make an enormous effort to conceal the whole universe of possibilities that exists inside him. Actors are treated as uncanny beings by non-actors because of the strange voyage into the silly acquaintances as them. Actors, in contrast, look at non-actors with a certain bewilderment and secretly think, what an odd life those people lead. Doesn't it get a bit claustrophobic? It's commonly noted that we all come into the world naked, and at the beginning of each day, most of us find ourselves naked once again in that strange, suspended moment before we put on our clothes. In various religions, priests put on their clothes quite solemnly according to a ritual. Policemen, soldiers, janitors, and hotel maids get up in the morning, get dressed, go to work, go to their locker rooms, remove their clothes, and get dressed again in their respective uniforms. The actor goes to the theater, goes to his dressing room, and puts on his costume. And as he does so, he remembers the character he's going to play, how the character feels, how the character speaks. The actor in costume looks in the mirror and it all comes back to him. When the actor steps onto the stage to begin the play, he wants to convince the audience that what they're seeing is not a play, but reality itself. The costume that the actor wears and the voice that are possible, that is, our capacity to believe what we want and need to believe about any person who is not ourself. Because let's be frank, other people are not me. And people who are not me will always, in a way, be alien to me. They will always, in a way, be strangers to me. And I will never know with any certainty what they're like. So, yes, it's possible to believe a fantasy about them. Now, I've never met my own genes or looked at them under a microscope. But nonetheless, 
I feel I can make some guesses about what they're like. One thing I feel I know is that I'm amazingly responsive to visual cues about other people. And I'm prepared to guess that this is characteristic of our entire species. And this is why people who can afford it spend enormous sums of money on haircuts and clothes. And this is why films which deal in close-ups put an enormous amount of attention on makeup and hair. And this is why actors in plays take their costumes very, very seriously. It's all because people really do believe what visual cues say. A haircut dramatically changes how we see a person. A haircut can say, I'm intelligent, disciplined, precise, and dynamic. A different haircut can say, I'm not very bright. I'm sort of a slob. I don't care what I find sex an interesting subject. <laughs> I'm interested in how I look. I'm rather fun. And I think life is great. And there are haircuts that say, I'm not interested in sex. And I think life is awful. <laughs> Clothes work in a different way. While the shape of one's head, as completed by one's hair, describes personality, clothes tell us about a person's role in society. But there's an extraordinary similarity in the speed with which we respond to the cues from haircuts and from clothes, and in the strength of our belief that what they're telling us is true. So when the actor comes on stage in the costume of a king, I'm prepared to believe that he is a king. The actor on stage is living in reality. He knows that there is indeed a king inside him, but he also knows very well that fate has made him an actor and not actually a king. The audience member looking at the actor on stage steps out of reality and lives in illusion until the curtain comes down. Our capacity to fantasize about other people and to believe our own fantasies makes it possible for us to be in our romantic lives and eagerly ascribe to a potential partner benevolent characteristics which are based on our hopes and not on truth. <laughs> and one can hardly begin to describe the anguish caused by our habit of using our fantasizing capacity in the opposite direction. That is, using it to ascribe negative characteristics to people who, for one reason or another, we'd like to think less of. Sometimes we do this in regard to large groups of people, none of whom we've met. But we can even apply our remarkable capacity in relation to individuals or groups whom we know rather well, sometimes simply to make ourselves feel better about things that we happen to have done to them or are planning to do. <laughs> you couldn't exactly say, for example, that Thomas Jefferson had no familiarity with dark-skinned people. His problem was that he couldn't figure out how to live the life he in fact was living unless he owned these people as slaves. 
And as it would have been unbearable to him to see himself as so heartless, unjust, and cruel as to keep in bondage people who were just like himself, he ignored the evidence that was in front of his eyes and clung to the fantasy that people from Africa were not his equals. Well, one could write an entire political history of the human race by simply recounting the exhausting cycle of fantasies which different groups have believed at different times about different other groups. Africans, Jews, Mexicans, same-sex lovers, women. Hmm. After a certain period of time, somebody says, well, actually, they're not that different from anybody else. They have the same capacities. I don't like all of them. Some of them are geniuses, etc., etc. The revelations are always in the same direction. We learn about one group or another the thing that actors quickly learn in relation to themselves when they become actors. People are more than they seem to be. We're all rather good at seeing through last year's fantasies and moving on, and rather proud of it, too. <laughs> oh, yes. After voting for Barack Obama, we took a marvelous vacation in Vietnam. We went to a reading of the poetry of Octavio Paz with our friends, the Goldsteins. And we saw Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi there. They looked fantastic. Whatever. It's this year's fantasies that present a difficulty. Are we more brilliant than Thomas Jefferson? Hmm. Probably not. So there's our situation. It's delightfully easy to see through illusions held by people far. Around 400,000 babies are born on Earth each day. Some are born irreparably damaged. Casualties of the conditions in which their mothers lived, malnutrition, polluted water, mysterious chemicals that sneak into the body and warp the genes. But the much more tragic and more horrible truth is that most of these babies are born healthy. There's nothing wrong with them. Every one of them is ready to develop into a person whose intelligence, insight, aesthetic taste, and love of other people could help to make the world a better place. Every one of them is ready to become a person who wakes up happily in the morning because they know they're going to spend the day doing work they find fascinating, work that they love. They're born with all the genetic gifts they could possibly need. Wiggling beside their mothers, they have no idea what's going to be done to them. In the old days of the Soviet five-year plans, the planners tried to determine what ought to happen to the babies born under their jurisdiction. They would calculate how many managers the economy needed, how many researchers, how many factory workers. And the Soviet leaders would organize society in an attempt to channel the right number of people into each category. In most of the world today, the invisible hand of the global market performs this function. I've sometimes noted that arriving at the railroad station at Auschwitz 
and the way that the SS officers who greeted the trains would perform on the spot what was called a selection, choosing a few of those getting off of each train to be slave laborers who would get to live for as long as they were needed, while everyone else would be sent to the gas chambers almost immediately. And just as inexorable as were these selections are the determinations made by the global market when babies are born. The global market selects out a tiny group of privileged babies who are born in certain parts of certain towns in certain countries. And these babies are allowed to lead privileged lives. Some will be scientists, some will be bankers, some will command, rule, and grow fantastically rich, and others will become more modestly paid intellectuals or teachers or artists. But all the members of this tiny group will have the chance to develop their minds and realize their talents. As for all the other babies, the market sorts them and stamps labels onto them and hurls them violently into various pits where an appropriate upbringing and preparation are waiting for them. If the market thinks that workers will be needed in electronics factories, a few hundred thousand babies will be stamped with the label factory worker and stationed for 16 hours a day. She'll sleep in the factory's dormitory. She won't be allowed to speak to her fellow workers. She'll have to ask for permission to go to the bathroom. She'll be subjected to the sexual whims of her boss and she'll be breathing fumes day and night that'll make her ill and lead to her death at an early age. And when she has died, one will be able to say about her that she worked like a nurse, not to benefit herself, but to benefit others. Except that a nurse works to benefit the sick, while the factory worker will have worked to benefit the owners of her factory. She will have devoted her hours, her consideration, her energy and strength to increasing their wealth. She will have lived and died for that. And it's not that anyone sadly concluded when she was born that she lacked the talent to become, let's say, a violinist, a conductor, or perhaps another Beethoven. The reason she was sent to the factory and not to the concert hall was not that she lacked ability, but that the market wanted workers. And so she was one of the ones who was assigned to be one. And during the period when all the babies who are born have been sorted into their different categories and labeled, during the period when you could say that they're being nourished in their pens until they're ready to go to work, they're all assigned appropriate costumes. And once they know what costume they'll wear, each individual is given an accent, a way of speaking, some characteristic personality traits which coordinate well with their personality, body type, and costume. And so each person comes to understand what role he will play, and so each can consistently select and reproduce through all the decades and changes of fashion the appropriate style and wardrobe for the rest of his life. Even those of us who were selected out from the general group have our role and our costume. I happen to play a semi-prosperous, fortunate bohemian. Not 
doing too badly nor too magnificently. And as I walk out onto the street on a sunny day dressed in my fortunate bohemian costume, I pass, for example, the burly cop on the beat. I pass the weedy professor in his rumpled jacket, distractedly ruminating as he shambles along. I see couples in elegant suits briskly rushing to their meetings. I see the art student and the law student. And in the background, sometimes looming up as they come a bit closer, those not particularly selected out. The drugstore cashier in her oddly matched pink shirt and green slacks. The wacky street hustler with his crazy dialect and his crazy gestures. The being because I believe it all. I simply believe it. I believe the costumes. I believe the characters. And then for one instant, as the woman runs into the shop, I suddenly see what's happening. The way a drowning man might have one last vivid glimpse of the glittering shore. And I feel like screaming out, stop, stop, this isn't real. It's all a fantasy. It's all a play. The people in these costumes are not what you think. The accents are fake. The expressions are fake. Don't you see? It's all one instant. And then it's gone. My mind goes blank for a moment, and then I'm back to where I was. The domestic worker runs out of the shop and hurries back toward her job, and once again I see her only as the character she plays. I see a person who works as a servant, and surely that person could never have lived, for example, the life I've lived or been like me. She's not intelligent enough. She had to be a servant. She was born that way. The hustler surely had to be a hustler. It's all he could do. The cashier could never have worn beautiful clothes. She could never have been someone who sought out what was beautiful. She could only ever have worn that pink shirt and those green slacks. So just as Thomas Jefferson lived in illusion, because he couldn't face the truth about the slaves that he owned, which we've all been granted as our dubious birthright. My belief in the performance unfolding before me allows me not to remember those dreadful moments when all of those babies were permanently maimed and I was spared. The world hurled the infant who became the domestic worker to the bottom of a pit and crippled her for life, and I saw it happen, but I can't remember it now. And so now, it seems quite wonderful to me that the world, today, treats the domestic worker and me with scrupulous equality. It seems wonderfully right. If I steal a car, I go to jail. And if she steals a car, she goes to jail. If I drive on the highway, I pay a toll. And if she drives on the highway, she pays a toll. We compete on an equal basis for the things we want. If I apply for a job, I take the test. And if she applies for the job, she takes the test. And I go through my life thinking it's all quite fair. 
If we look at reality for more than an instant, if we look at the human beings passing us on the street, it's not bearable. It's not bearable to watch while the talents and the abilities of informances as these characters are consistent and convincing because they actually believe about themselves just what I believe about them. That what they are now is all that they could ever have been. They could never have been anything other than what they are. Of course that's what we all have to believe so that we can bear our lives and live in peace together. But it's the peace of death. Actors understand the infinite vastness hiding inside each human being. The characters not played, the characteristics not revealed. School teachers can see every day that, given the chance, the sullen pupil in the back row can sing, dance, juggle, do mathematics, paint, and think. If the play we're watching is an illusion, if the baby who now wears the costume of the hustler in fact had the capacity to become a biologist or a doctor, a circus performer or a poet or a scholar of ancient Greek, then the division of labor as now practiced is inherently immoral. And we must somehow learn a different way to share out all the work that needs to be done. The costumes are wrong. They have to be discarded. We have to start out naked again and go from there. Well, I'll start with the last statement first. You know, that's a beautiful statement and um, the squandering of humanity the right phrase. Um, one person asked, how did I get to Haymarket Books? It's such an elaborate story, but um, uh, I was interviewed by the New York Times. I'm going to put this in two sentences. I was interviewed by the New York Times and I, uh, it was going to, it wasn't going to be a very long interview. I mean, it wasn't going to be a very long piece. And I said, well, look, just, um, I can't summarize all of my thoughts about the world. I'll just say that I, you know, the person who comes closest. <laughs> Because uh, the editor, not the top editor of the Times, the, the sub-editor with whom I was dealing, said, uh, well, we're not going to put that in. I said, well, that's my only way of expressing my thought, and this is a very important part of this interview. So she said, no, we just are not going to put that in. There was a guy who talked about Noam Chomsky only two months ago. Uh, and uh, we're not going to turn our whole paper into a kind of uh, an endless uh, discussion of this guy. Uh, and so 
a kind of amusing exchange of, of letters uh, ensued and uh, uh, I well they were funny and uh, I sent sent the letters to uh, Noam Chomsky to amuse him <laughs> and uh, uh, so that's how I I came to uh, meet Anthony Arno, and uh, that's how I eventually got to Haymarket Books, uh, because it was his idea. Uh, you know, I got to know Anthony, I got to know Brenda Coughlin, I became, I mean, not that this is not corrupt, they, they the work of a friend, because I bribed them, they they uh, they liked what I wrote, and uh, it was you know not my idea to collect these essays that I'd written over many years. It was uh, Anthony's suggestion, so that's how that book comes to exist. Uh, the reference to the Grand Nagus may have passed over some people's heads. <laughs> the Grand Nagus is a character in Star Trek that I had the honor to play. Um, you may not recognize, you may have seen me, but you may not recognize me. Uh, but, but I totally, uh, you know, share the sentiment that uh, you know writers of all kinds and and artistic people should indeed uh, learn more about the world and how it works and uh, well it's better for everybody to learn how to uh, you know write in a in a readable, Style that interests people and to tell stories well, this is good for Marxists and for anybody else. Uh, you know, how do we uh, communicate our thoughts and feelings to people who, uh, who don't already think the way we do? And... Uh, Certainly in this country, that would be most, most people have never really quite heard of some of the thoughts that are quite common at the Marriott. Uh, how do you, you know, how is that done? How do we communicate? Uh, I mean, I've run into several people here who have recognized me from my being in the movies or whatever. And uh, I've thought, well, should I invite them to come to uh, to hear me? Uh, and I, and one voice has said, "No, don't be ridiculous. They it, they it, they wouldn't uh, you know they wouldn't get it. They would just be bored." Um, but I have invited, I did invite every, all of those people to come. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
yes, I think you know that's a, a crucial. I mean, unbelievably crucial issue. One person asked, in effect, if I've paid a price among my friends for... Well, actually, my essays are much more popular than my plays. <laughs> uh, I already weeded out uh, most people I know. Uh, <laughs> because of the plays. Uh, but yes, there you know, there there are a few people I mean what I've tried to do in, in writing is I I really write for my friends. So I don't write in a way that is um, attacking uh with hate, it's attacking with a certain uh, uh, affection or concern, uh, which is, you know, for instance, the, which is how I, I mean, that is my preferred uh, attitude, if you want to know. I mean, even my essay in the book about Israel. Uh, you know, it's not written with hate. It's written, uh, it's an attack, but uh, definitely were people who were acquaintances or people who I sometimes would see who I no longer see because they they find me, uh, well, the word that you know, people would say, uh, well, he's, he's shrill. Uh, or, you know, certainly there were those who felt, well, he used to be more fun. Uh, you know, he, he's become overbearing or heavy. And then I, there were a few episodes in my life, but very maybe just a couple where uh, I behaved inappropriately uh, in a bourgeois setting. Uh, and said things that uh, were not really uh, that were not appropriate in a way but that that I felt compelled to say. And those, there were really only a couple of those episodes, and I, I do play them over and over and over again <laughs> in my head, and, I, and I'm still kind of mixed up about them in a way. Uh, I hurt people's feelings, on the other hand, and I behaved, I surprised people. They were expecting that on the but on the other hand, what I said was true, and maybe there are certain times there's certain there's certain things that there is no appropriate moment to say to certain people. 
uh, and it can only come out inappropriately, and maybe that is uh, for the best or or not. I after my death, we can debate it. Uh, as for the person who is an actress and uh, you know I totally share your feelings uh, yes it is considered um, well various degrees of laughable when uh, actors uh, express their political opinions uh, and you know the only thing that could be uh, laughable, but I don't know if this ever happens, would be if there were people who thought, well, Meryl Streep played a very heroic character, and so she must really be a very heroic... There are a lot of things that uh, people impute to others that uh, they've never seen actually. I wrote a play uh, which which had some uh, very fascistic uh, characters in it and uh, people used to I was in the play and so people would buttonhole me after the play. They would wait for me to attack me, and they would say, don't you realize this is terribly dangerous? You know, people could become Nazis because they've seen your play. <laughs> and I would sort of say, well, did that happen to you? <laughs> uh, and they would say, well, no. I mean, it didn't happen to me, but it could happen to other people. <laughs> Anyway, if there were people who thought that actors were their characters and that they were incredibly smart because they play smart people, that would be a little <laughs> foolish. But I think uh, actors often are, uh, you know, very insightful people. Obviously, to be a good actor, uh, it's required that you would be somewhat insightful. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you're you're portraying, uh, you're giving a portrait of of human beings and how they work, and uh, you know that America is particularly uh, reluctant to to give the political microphone to artistic people. I mean, even writers are. Uh, it's considered scandalous even if a writer expresses his political opinion. Uh, in many countries, or most countries of the world, that is not the case at all. Uh, people who write uh, fiction or plays uh, uh, and people involved in all sorts of artistic activities are, are uh, welcomed into the political uh, realm. You know, their thoughts are Valued, and I do think uh, that uh, you know artistic uh, people.
people, uh, because their brains are used in weird ways every day, uh, they uh, have something unusual to offer. Yes, as for Marx taking all of my ideas, uh, and I don't know why he had to write so many books. It uh, could have been, no, no, does anyone else have anything to say? It's all been said. Maybe not. Okay. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.